Dude, Damon Owens is the man. That's what I'm leading with today. So this is, as you know, Nathan Crankfield, the host of Seeking Excellence. And today I got to interview uh, one of my, yeah, he's, he's kind of like a mentor friend, a uh, guy that I've gotten to talk to a few times, Damon Owens. I, I love him. You know, I, I really look up to him, really respect all the work that he's done, all the work that he's doing. And so we got to talk about a lot today. And so really, really enjoyed having this conversation, especially in my stage of life, to be able to talk about getting ready for marriage. But it's not just a marriage prep for people who are engaged, but people who are single, people who want to get married one day, people who are married, people who are dating. This, this episode is so important for all the stuff that we talked about. The Holy Spirit was super present. I loved it. Great conversation. I hope you get a lot out of it. Hit me up. Let me know what you got from it. And be sure to check out all of Damon's uh, stuff. We're going to put the, the links are in the show notes for all the things that he's doing. Uh, to check out his work as well, because he's crushing it for the Lord. And I'm super grateful to know him and to have gotten to have him on the show and to have him on in the future as well. Enjoy. God bless. You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom, to go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ, to be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You are not made to make excuses. time for you to take extreme ownership for your life, for all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. My man, David, it is great to have you with me today. Thank you so much for making time. Oh, man, it's, my time is your time. It's great talking with you and uh, really excited about things going on in your life right now. and look forward to talking with you. Yeah, it's a big time, you know, and uh, I'm just super excited for this one today. Obviously, it's a good time to, to come to Damon Owens is being engaged, uh, you know, right? Your, your wheelhouse of expertise with marriage and family stuff. And just we had such a great conversation last time when we Zoomed together of just discussing the ways that, you know, marriage and family can really impact and change the world. So I'm really mm -hmm. excited to get some of your thoughts and perspectives on that. But first, I'd love to just, you know, for those those listening who aren't familiar with your background, your life story, if you just share kind of, you know, what it is that you do, your work that you've done in the church. I know it's extensive and, and broad, but I think you have an interesting story if you'd share some of that. Yeah, I love my story. It's mine. I'm keeping it. <laughs> That's right. I ain't got no choice. <laughs> I claim it. That's right. That's right. One well, thing, you know, it's um, unintended. It really very much is a, uh, um, a calling. I didn't expect to be here. Um, you know, I, my intention was uh, first music. You know, I was a singer, actually, and I thought I'd do a full-time singing career when the football thing un blew up. And um, then I went into corporate with engineering, a bachelor's from Brown, a master's in UC Berkeley, worked uh, 16 years for AT&T Bell Labs in the glorious uh, 80s and 90s when we were developing cell technology and 
2G, 3G, 4G. We were doing all that big stuff there. And, and then um, married my beloved Melanie after graduating Berkeley in 90. We got married in 93 and had a major conversion in those two years before we were married. Major conversion. Both of us grew up Catholic, but uh, had a young adult conversion to really an encounter with Christ, a re-encounter with the church. And that really was pivotal because it not only affected our relationship, it affected, you know, where we are without our place in the world and the church with each other. And God just gave us these aspirations for, um, you know, way beyond the love we had for each other. So we got into marriage prep part time. And, you know, in our first year of marriage, we're teaching natural family planning. We just learned it right. Really? First wow. year of marriage. Yep. We're in marriage pre-canas. We're literally um, packing up, going parish to parish around five dioceses in New Jersey, New York, it just blew up in the first year. We were the, the young, you know, hip couple back then who just had a major conversion around sex sexuality and wanted to take the sexuality talk. So word got out, you know, and uh, <laughs> that was the foray first in the ministry, to be honest with you. And I was secure at work. And, and that was really something Melanie and I formed our marriage around from 93 to probably 2001, 2002. And by then, I had, you know, fast track career and left Bell Labs, started my own engineering company uh, with about eight other managers, 80 engineers, 35 Bell Labs patents and, you know, about a billion and a half dollars in, in sales. It was one of those ginormous, you know, 90s, 2000 kind of deals. And it lasted exactly 12 months, uh, ended pretty well. But uh, I just was, you know, what, 35 and just figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And uh, like most wives, you'll discover they see your gifts and love your gifts before you do. And Melanie was like, you know, you need to be, you need to just continue teaching. You need to be, you know, go out and give talks. And, and this is honestly, this, you know, for your listeners, this was 2001, 2002, excuse me. We sold the company. And in 2002, you could count all the lay Catholic evangelist speakers on one hand. Right. You count all of them on one hand. I mean, you'd have to, including Scott Hahn. So this, this, this wasn't a thing is my point. So when right, she said right. that, I was like, I was like, babe, look, I'm an engineer. I'm a business guy. I'm not going to, what am I going to be? I'm a speaker. What am I going to speak? I was like mocking it. Like, what am I It's not like a profession. Yeah. Exactly. Right, right. So just the ego had to get out of the way. But um, long story, very short, those next few years was just this, um, this um, cobbling together of opportunities of really creating a market with people like Christopher West, uh, Matt Pinto from Ascension Press, uh, a number of just, you know, seminal sort of speakers and, and theologians who were trying to find a voice as lay people in the church to uh, proclaim a, a new gospel. And that's when I was introduced to Theology of the Body that just infused all of our talks. And so really since 2002, almost 19 years now, uh, full-time ministry, uh, supporting the, the family, eight kids, uh, all boys except the first seven. I always say, uh, house full of girls, if you're not doing the math. And it's, it's usually been, it's, um, time's been just moving by. So I'm, I'm honored to, you know, to be considered part of, you know, this, this world of, of lay speakers. And, and um, it's really been an interesting 20 some odd years watching just some talented, gifted people finally getting a platform, getting, you know, a voice to be able to, you know, to witness, which is what we need, witness to the faith and not just be, repeating teachings and things like that. So uh, it's really a, a privileged time. Right. That's so cool. Yeah, it is so interesting. I remember talking about the early 2000s and what that was like kind of, you know, breaking into that back then. But I think one thing that's really interesting is is your story. You're obviously very well educated, you know, at the time of, <laughs> of your conversion and getting married and stuff. But 
I think a lot of people struggle with being educated or successful. And then you had this conversion and you really didn't know, like, I mean, I assume you weren't like super formed and educated in the faith at that point. No, right? like, no absolutely not. You said it had been years until you discovered theology of the body really later on. And so what was kind of that process like? Like, how did you educate yourself? Were you just crushing books back then? I know it was before podcasts and YouTube and all that stuff. So, Oh, good point. Great point. Yeah, yeah great point. Um, that's exactly what it was. It's, um, you know, back, I'm really going to date myself now. There, there was, books absolutely was the source of everything. But we had we had cassette tapes, man. We had tape, <laughs> we, trade, we would trade mixtapes on, you know, Scott Hahn and, you know, Mary Beth Bonacci and, and Christopher West and, you know, uh, you know, a whole, you know, the, the, the handful of people I mentioned. So the tapes were the big thing. Man, you so had a funny. tape out and everybody was popping in your cassette tape and then the CDs came out and like, oh man, look, I, I got the name. Time. Yeah, big time, right? <laughs> so there was still a way to communicate, but books was there. And you know, here, here's, here's a good picture is that the theology obviously was there. The gifting that we have as, as lay evangelists, as podcasters, folks you know, like us who are in this is that it's about uh, communicating the gospel or the deposit of faith in a way that the current culture can hear it. That's mm. the magic. It's not, it's not being creative in our theology. It's not being, um, you know, um, not just perspective, but, you know, sort of ex- try to create things to make it sizzle. Those people come and go. I mean, when you're trying to create new stuff and new sizzle, I've seen people come and go crash and burn. I really have not exaggerating, right. but the real opportunity is being able to take complex, nuanced theology, bring it through a lens of real personal relationship with Christ, and then being able to speak the language of whoever your audience is in a way that they hear it and they go, yeah, 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 that's what I want to know. That's that's what I want to figure out. Right. And there's, there's a gifting to that. And my gift has not ever been sort of this creative theology as much as it's been taking something that really has moved me personally. And this is the area of sex, sexuality, um, chastity, marriage, family, even the, the, you know, the biological, the biology of the body and the theology of the body, uh, the reproductive system and, and the stewardship of our sexuality. This is the place where I needed healing, where I needed uh, formation, and I got it, and I'm still getting it. And then being able to almost narrate the landscape, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful way of, of making the gospel and the deposit of faith living and personal, and people really appreciate that authenticity, the, the struggle as much as the, the confidence because of the experience. It's what pulled Paul VI is this, this call to be witnesses, uh, teachers who are witnesses instead of witnesses, um, I'm sorry, witnesses who are teachers instead of just teachers who give witness. Right, yeah, I think that's, that's super big, that last part, you know, thinking about what is our, our kind of approach because I think it is so easy to just kind of want to be uh, super educational, you know, and I like what you talked about taking the complex ideas and putting them through that, the lens of the personal relationship with Christ, because it is so big. And I think everybody wants to err on just exclusively talking about one side of it, right? Like dropping the theology and the actual, you know, eternal truth aspect of it. And just talking about the personal relationship with Christ that in that way, never really challenges us to change or grow or be different right? Mm. Kind of really allows us to kind of remain in our sin of this kind of like nice Jesus that we see kind of come up in the world that doesn't want you to change, loves you, not only loves you as you are, accepts you as you are, and but also lets you stay as you are, right? Yeah. Like, I think that's the mm. kind of side that is that extreme. And then you have the other extreme where it's just kind of browbeating over the head with the theology and you don't understand the, the benefits of the personal relationship that can transform your life for the better, you know, and give you that joy and peace. 
Yeah, that's well said. And I think part of it is, is my story, and I've seen this with another number of other people, is, you know, you got to be sincere and authentic. You got to begin where you are. You know, if you have an academic background or if you're in the sciences of theology and anthropology, philosophy, you know, start there and whatever, you know, delights you in that. And I think as we start to find our own voice, uh, we start to find uh, and interact with people who, you know, benefit from wherever we are. We start to grow. We get challenged. We we start to find out what we're wrong and we'll find out where we're wrong isn't always factual. It isn't always theological. Many times it's very, it's very personal. So there's a delight that happens later on after you get through sort of the anxiety of thinking that you're going to be wrong in a public sphere and then get humiliated that, you know, that whole sort of ego and pride thing of, of, of people finding out maybe I'm, I'm a fraud. That's, 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 there's a name for that and they call it the, um, it'll come to me a little bit, but imposter syndrome, syndrome, right? Um, And a lot of that is because in the beginning we, we express our POV, our point of view because it's authentic to us and we need to do that. But at the same time, as we express it, we start to confront all these other points of view. And it's, there's a parsing that happens where you have to, on one hand, uh, express and connect a deep respect, a reverence, I would say, for the other person as you're working out your salvation of fear and trembling. So that that conceding to the other person is not a conceding of ideas and concepts and abstracts. It's a conceding to the reverence of that person that there's things I don't know. There's points of perspective that don't violate truth, but I don't understand it. We're seeing this now with the race question, right? Where there's people's you know truths that seem to contradict the nice, neat worldview that we've had for X number of decades. And that doesn't make it wrong. It means that this is stuff we don't even know that we don't know. Right. And when you do that on a public scale, a public, a public stage, you know, you have to take as your friend every opportunity, whether it's during the questions and answers, whether it's during, you know, somebody attacking you on social media or something else. <laughs> Everything is an occasion to say, you know, Jesus and only Jesus. And if I'm wrong, let me be wrong. You know, and it's, right. it's hard. It's hard. It's really it hard. So how did you deal with that? I want to go back to the imposter syndrome a little bit, because I think mm-hmm. that's something that keeps so many people from evangelizing at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean it's so interesting, you know, the, the journey of even, even just doing this podcast and thinking about uh, certain times where I've like, you know, when I'm telling my story or podcasts or, or speaking publicly and I'm like, do I go? Everybody kind of struggles with one. If I put myself out there as an example of faith, like then I make a mistake later, people are going to view me as a hypocrite. That's one. The other thing I think too, is like, you're sharing a lot. I'm sure at times and you have to balance of how much do you share about your marriage and your experience or your Huge. family, right? I've had Huge. to think about that in my life of, talking like when I share my story, a lot of my hardship was family stuff, you know, with my parents, with my mom, especially with my father. And it's like, so how much of this do I share knowing that, you know, transparency and the reality of it and the realness and authenticity can help a lot of people relate, can help a lot of people get through some serious pain and suffering, but can also cause pain and suffering on the back end in Mm -hmm. my family and the people that I'm talking about. So how do you kind of balance that approach, I guess, that balance of those two things of wanting to help other people heal, but also not trying to wound the people in your life in the process? No, it's a great question, man. Very insightful. I mean that because that is, that is the life of the, of, you know, the evangelist, the life of, you know, a public life here where we're, we're, as Paul says, St. Paul said, we're working out our salvation fear and trembling, but now we're doing it on a stage. And that public element has great danger for our own personal spirituality, our own uh, primary vocations, you know, when you're married, it's your wife and your kids. Um, you know, before you're married, it's about you know that authenticity, as you said, of 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 really walking your walk with Christ, and not allowing that public dimension to either substitute 
for personal evangelization, substitute for, you know, for the ebb and flow of, of growing. So personally, what I've I've dealt with at different stages and still dealing with in that imposter syndrome is um, early on, it was about the theology. So not having a degree. I don't have a degree in theology. And for, you know, for a long time, it was a great wound, even as, you know, the the talk requests and the, you know, the the life of the evangelist was growing leaps and bounds. It was always this sort of the voice in my head was, yeah, but you don't have a degree from such and such, you know? Yeah. And I've always desired it and I don't fear it. I mean, I went to Ivy League schools. I have an engineering degree. I'm, it's not, it's not like the work scared me, but by the time I got the call, really call for full time, I already had four kids living in Northern New Jersey, right. you know, leaving a, you know, a, a multi hundred thousand dollar position to, to, to go into Catholic lay ministry with zero dollars. It doesn't I mean, exist. <laughs> it just didn't much. exist. Right. So I'm like, okay, Lord, I gotta, I gotta go. And I, I literally, I applied to JPG Institute. I was down there looking for apartments with Mel or getting ready to do it. And we were down there looking at little air apartments. And, I, and it, it, she said it and it hit me. I was like, this, this is not right. This is not right. This something is, I'm, I'm stretching for something. So my personal story was, a, and my, was one of grasping for what mm-hmm. I thought was the credibility needed to be a Catholic lay evangelist in the world. And it, that's not my path. And it was never my path. Right. So I'm the guy, I'm the guy who reads everything. I'm the guy who asks anything. I'm the guy who approaches uh, the, 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 the famous and the obscure when they write something. And I'm like, yeah, but what about, you know, and then this, this, this ability, like I did with engineering and everything else is to, is to get that right in my own mind and heart. And then to be able to say, ah, that's it. And then to be able to almost like a like a portrait to build this portrait. So no matter where I go and what I speak, I'm not you know going verse and 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 uh, in, in line of some theology or idea. I literally am looking at a portrait, whether it's the portrait of the human person, whether it's you know the the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This this image, and then wherever the audience is, my gifting is to be able to share this vision, this visual, this 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 truth, and then to apply both the you know, contemporary language that people understand right. and the deeper theological language to sort of break down what the science of theology is trying to describe. Because ultimately, it's about the encounter with the person of Christ who reveals the person of the Father, the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So it's deeply relational. So I, it took years, if not decades, to come to sort of this piece that says, you know, this, this theology that I teach is authentic in its origin, in its study, and its... its uh, it's um, sources, but it's unique in the way that God has given me the ability both to understand and articulate. And there's mm-hmm. a joy with it too. So all that I'm talking about is the lyrics, right? The words that are spoken. There's right. also a melody, and the melody with that is joy. It's like when I talk, when I talk about stuff, it's like you know, you got to see this, right? You know, you think you're looking at this, but let me show you the whole picture. Right. And there's, there's that joy of of being with people as they as they start to see the Lord, the church, you know, with with new eyes. Yeah, that's so cool. And I think, yeah, I love what you said about how it's really based in a relationship. One thing that I just kind of connected in my brain while you were talking is, you know, we were talking a little bit about Hallow before this and mm-hmm. just the great work that they're doing there. Oh, yeah. And I was having a Seeking Excellence team meeting last night and one of my um, one of my teammates was talking about how he said, you know, the great thing about places like Hallow is like they're not as caught up in like the degrees and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you're in a tech startup, like Google and, you know, Facebook, like they don't really care about your degrees. If you can crush what you need to do, like they're not saying you have to have a PhD in computer science, right. To to come and work at YouTube. There's people who didn't go to college that are working there. 
And he kind of said that, you know, I was like, wow, that's really interesting. That's really true. And one thing that I think is interesting, if you think about going back to the apostles, right? Because we often look at them. I think when we have this like imposter syndrome, they're a great example for us to say, mm-hmm. I mean, they obviously spent three years with the Lord, but like prior to them, prior, when he called them, you know, like what, what did they know? What did they do? They weren't, you know, these saints that were living in this perfect life, right? When they were right. called, they still made a ton of mistakes after. Mm-hmm. And so, and you see this over and over again, in the lives of the saints. And I think that you kind of look at that and we have this misconception, I think with the church to say, okay, the Lord, uh, you know, was in that startup phase then, but now, well, now when there is the Scott Hans and Dr. Tim Gray and, you know, this doctor and that doctor, and they're the ones speaking, you know, it's like, I'm not educated like that. So how can I, now we're at, they, people think that the church is only at this bureaucratic stage and we do have a lot of bureaucracy, I think, and, you know, structure, mm-hmm. we still have, but the Lord is still operating very much in that fast growth startup phase, you know, that he, he doesn't care if you're qualified, whatever your certifications are. He's like, just come, I'll train you. We have a spot for you. I just want you to be willing to work hard, be adaptable and do whatever I need you to do. And if you're willing to do that, <laughs> you can join the team, you know, and that's yeah. what he wants. And he's no, willing love- to roll with the people who don't have that, that certification or whatever might look right in the world. I love that. And I wish I had that kind of peace for that, you know, years ago, I would have, I would have had far less anxiety as all the, you know, the formation of, of the ministry, because it's true. And, the, you know, the, the smarter people that I meet and hang out with and learn with, you know, they're struggling for these public facing things to connect with people. Right. And yeah. the people that have the gifting to connect with people are hanging on the on this the scholarship of the Peter Creeps and the Ted Shrees and the, the, you know, Jeff Cavins and just Scott. We should be. I mean, this, these are the right, people that yeah. we learn from. And they would say, oh, you know what? I know exactly how to tell that story. So right. it's like if you put the chocolate and the peanut butter together, everybody's trying to make a Reese's cup right here. We need, <laughs> right. Right? You need the scholarship and you also need the ability to communicate it. And right. wherever you come in with your gifting, you'll never be able to do it alone. Yep. So that there's a piece there that these years have given me that I, I honestly wish I had earlier because it would have been more joy. It would have been my joy in, in you know, again, full-time supporting the family, fulfilling this call and this angst of am I doing it right and do I need more? Um, because there's really a joy right now. I'm just It's a joyful time to be in yeah. my ministry for me uh, after this because there's, a, there's, a, there's much more peace in knowing what I know, knowing that I don't know what I don't know, yeah. and but also just being around people who – you know, can break things down. And I know those moments, those moments where you, you hear something, I hear something, the moment I, I reread something and it has an entirely different meaning to me. Or right. I, I pick something up that I didn't, or I hear other speakers or other scholars and I see, I hit one idea, just one idea. And it opens up an entire field of what people are struggling with, either with gender or with their self or their own anxiety, depression, the psychology of the, you know, there's something there that when your eyes are open and your ears are open, you're going to see the Lord doing exactly what you said, calling you from where you are, like the Lord walked along and, and called Peter and Andrew and James and John and, yep. and uh, yeah, discipleship, brother, discipleship. Exactly. Yeah, no, I love that. That's so good. And so I think we could talk about that for three hours, but I want to transition <laughs> back into the, the marriage and family stuff. So sure. especially, you know, and we did talk about this last time, uh, with with race and racism and in the church and stuff like that. And I think that one of the things that I often share that I think is a huge issue, not just in the black community, but in America at large is the decrease in the change in our perspective, our approach to marriage, how we value marriage, how we see marriage, what we think marriage is. And so especially I think coming from the the, the black community, I don't know what your upbringing was like in regards to that, but I know my 
family really on both sides but especially my black family like not a lot of people get married there's not like this love for marriage so what was it that finally like clicked for you you know whether you were it was your upbringing in your childhood you realized that marriage was this important or how as an adult like what made you realize how important marriage was and want to like commit your life to that being kind of your almost your niche in evangelization and what you were doing yeah yeah well interesting question I, I like that um I think the honest answer is well, my parents, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're celebrating 60, 60 years of marriage, right? 60, wow. the number here, right? So they're together. My mom's, you know, late stage Alzheimer's. My dad's full-time caregiver, Deacon Frank. Uh, so, you know, I, I even through the, yeah, Deacon Frank is, is, is kind of the man, but, um, you know, I, I witnessed, you know, good times, bad and ugly, you know, in their marriage, you know, from the kid's perspective. But the endurance, so that clearly had an impact. And I think Melanie, um, not think, I know Melanie, when we met in 1989 in Berkeley, you know, I was not looking for a wife. I was not looking, you know, toward marriage at that point. You know, at that point, I'm, what, 23, 24, you know, in California as a Jersey boy. So I was not looking for marriage. I was looking for, you know, for uh, for Damon. But, you know, as I got to know her and and when we had that major conversion really around sex, sexuality, chastity, back to the church, everything opened up, everything opened up in terms of, you know, knowing in my heart, I didn't want to not be with this woman. I needed to be with this woman and, and that meant marriage. So I think there was already an intrinsic value that I had placed onto marriage. And um, she was the fulfillment of a dream come true, just to be, to be blunt. Then it was a matter of, okay, well, if this is the goal, I need some, I need, we, I got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do. This is serious. So that's the sort of the, 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 what is marriage and, and searching out things. And, you know, before there were a bunch of marriage prep programs and all these things, we were searching because we wanted it right. And, you know, she also, parents were, until her father died, parents were together, but difficult marriage. So we both had this pledge that we made, this belief that led to a vow that are, we're going to be different. We're going to be better. We're going to do, we're going to do things like nobody else. I mean, we had this whole inspirational aspirational view of what we were going to be and god used that for, for us and then because we didn't know what we didn't know but we know what we wanted and the dream really was manifested there in a very personal way uh with damon and melanie at you know 23 24 25 years old dreaming about you know what we could be together that neither one of us could be alone you're you're there now i know you are we haven't talked about this yet i know you right. are man i <laughs> i'm just excited for you because you know where i was when you were are now Man, that was the time where the world was just beautiful. Man, just beautiful. Man, there's but what the Lord can do through us. I mean, that, that was if we wrote a song, so we would write the song would be what the Lord is gonna do through us. That's what we would have That's written. so funny. <laughs> That's it is a fun time, man. You know, engagement really is exciting. Yes. Yeah, you're very hopeful, very optimistic and yeah, the world is definitely beautiful. That's that's a good way to put it. Drink it in, man. Bathe oh, in it. Man. It's it's a, it's a gifted time. It really is. Yeah, for sure. And so I love what you talked about there with the the marriage prep and all that stuff didn't exist back then. So I want to talk about a little bit about that of how you kind of view uh, like marriage prep, just like general tips. So if you were giving me, you know, what do you think I should do? What should I focus on in this time of engagement? And then I want to trans transition into. Uh, we'll go engagement, then dating, then single, how you feel like people can best prepare for marriage. But first, you know, a young, engaged guy, what, what would you, what do you think I should be focusing on for the next 11 months? 
<laughs> well, first, I was probably too harsh there about the marriage prep. Marriage prep was, was running strong. You look at the numbers of dioceses, archdiocese, and standard programs, weekend, or uh, even engage encounter, which Melanie and I did as well. We piled that on as well for a weekend. So I'm a little harsh in saying there was no marriage prep. There was very much programmatic availability right. for that immediate marriage prep. Like you're, you're engaged, you're preparing for a certain day. It was there. My critique really comes from the uh, um, the the congregation that that spoke about remote, proximate, and immediate preparation, where we look at exactly what you just asked, like what what at every stage is part of human formation that makes the vocation of marriage or you know um, celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, those two great vocations that makes those uh, more clear and really does prepare us well. So in that sense, moving from sort of that programmatic view of X number of hours, X number of programs, getting certificate and moving through, that's very much, and I say this with love, uh, very much the minimum wage. Mm. That's minimum wage. And I've said that for decades. And you need to do that. You know, just because you may, you know, beyond the minimum wage doesn't mean the minimum wage is bad. It means that that's the least you can do, right? In terms right. of preparation, right? Because the, the goal there canonically is um, uh, the ability to give consent. Right, the freedom to consent. Right, consent mm-hmm. makes the marriage. So from that canonical truth about what makes marriage marriage, a man and a woman, freedom to consent, the vows and the exchange of the persons, those things, you got to know what you're about to prepare for. So if you're going to cram all that in in the last six to 12 months, then that's the minimum wage and you need to do that. But the open minded, the open heart says you are not going to find all the preparation you need for your marriage engaged. You're just not. So what are you doing in that preparation? You're not cramming information or concepts or abstracts. You're not doing a fast track to get to know one another. You are strengthening your relationship with God who very specifically empowers you to live the sacrament of marriage. And you're doing it together. So what you're doing in the beginning there is starting to build a couple spirituality, the ability to approach the altar of God together. And that altar could be you know, around a restaurant table, it can be, it's, 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 it's metaphorical, even as it's literal in church, but you're learning how to, to approach God together, even though you're not in marriage yet, you're starting to see, is this other person capable of uh, entering into this uh, sacrament freely? Am I capable? So it's not so much the human formation at that late stage of, um, you know, gathering information and knowledge or you know, life skills or, you know, communication skills, those things are, those things are going to be very helpful. Conflict resolution. Um, it, those things are sort of the, the next level of preparing for that first year of marriage to get to the third year, to get to the seventh year, to get to the 10th year. Those are like the milestones. If you look at the science of, of marriage that year one, year three, year seven, year 10, and year 20 are, are these major crises moments in most, most marriages, plus or minus. But that's human. It's part of our own our own brokenness to that. As far as preparing for marriage when you're engaged, that engagement time, it's very much the strengthening of your relationship with Christ uh, through um, praying together, um, seeking spiritual direction individually and together, uh, reading, understanding what it is that you're preparing for and how uh, little of your own power <laughs> is 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 uh, is essential here. It really is the the receptivity to God. So it's not the initiative do do do. 
as much as it is that receptivity of opening together to what God can do through you. And it's easier said than done, like most things in the faith, right? Because what that conjures up, what that conjures up with you all is your own wounds, your own beliefs that you've set up individually, your, your memory and your family of origin, the dreams you had about your husband or your wife, uh, what you thought married life would be, your, your ideas about, uh, about your sexuality, being male, being female, and, and what, the, what the church could possibly have to do with you living a happy life. Mm-hmm. And you know, th- there are cultural things as well as their deep personal and familial things that have to be directly challenged in order really to stand at that altar together and say, Lord, your will be done. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. And yeah, I think I it, it <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh what I loved about that, especially what I kind of prepped or prepped a question for, is that it really doesn't start once you get engaged, you know, that you can't you can't just immediately once you get engaged be like, oh now should I take this faith stuff seriously, you know, which is why I, I preach that to young people so often of yeah. You don't want to, like, especially so many of us who have experienced, I mean, growing up, like so many of my friends' parents were divorced or have gotten divorced since, you know, my parents are divorced now. I think it's like, it's amazing to me, especially men with their fathers, mm. how easily we think that we're not going to become our fathers just by, <laughs> you know, just by means of saying that we won't, right? Like there's no effort. There's no nothing that's different. There's no change. I was just having a, a meeting with a resident last week and I was telling him, I'm just like, I'm like, you're going to, he was really, has a really bad relationship with his dad. A lot of stuff I re- related to when my relationship with my dad was much more rocky than it is now. It's much better since then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I'm like, dude, you, you're going to grossly underestimate how much, how intentional you have to be to not end up doing the same things he did. Yeah. You know, cause it's yep. so easy to just think, yeah, oh, I'm just, I'm just never going to be like that. And it's like, before you know it, <laughs> you know, you're doing some of the same stuff. And I saw yeah. myself doing that when I was in college and high school. And I was just like, man, I don't want to do this. And I was like, wow, one, I really need God to help me with this Two, I really need to, it's going to take some time, you know, like building this man is not an overnight. It's not a three month, six month thing. And I think that sometimes is the hardest part about faith and marriage for people is we don't commit to much for very long mm. in our lives. You know, yeah. and so these are two things you're talking about doing for the rest of your life and one's for eternity, you know, your relationship with God. So it's kind of a big thing, you know, to, to think about that. And if you're do, thinking about doing one, committing to one for the rest of your life, you might want to prepare for that before you meet that. Person. Yeah. And the, and the preparation, I'm so glad you said that, that, that preparation in, in, in my growing understanding is not about, um, you know, the moment of, of just making the vows. And there is a certain element, right, that's necessary for the freedom of consent, to have the knowledge and to, and to make the gift. But if we took that, that larger, that further horizon, you know, that, that broader view, it's the beginning of uh, a reorientation of our whole being. Right. And this is, this is what's happening at the mo- from the moment of baptism. And if you follow through all the sacraments, however they're ordered, it's this constant moving from this focus of the self and our own perfection, our own being, to this uh, being a person for others, you know, as the, I think it's the, the, um, the Salesians say, right? Be a man for others. Mm. Um, and w- what's happening here is, and this is this, this, Nathan, is why it is so much more difficult now for the Christian to live the vocation of marriage because marriage itself by intent and by culture has been redefined 
to still be now a new state of life that helps me to become a better me. So we, and we, we have, whether we've professed Christ or not, we have been raised in a culture that is looking at what real happiness is, is an inner sense. It's an inner psychological, emotive sense. I know what happiness is. It's just turning into the self. And if you happen right. to find somebody that you're better with, then that person's value really is about how they improve yourself. Help you. <laughs> they help you. I mean, and it's, it's disgusting when we say it as Christians, but then part of us is kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, you, you deserve to be happy and only you know when you're happy. So that's sort of the creeping in. And the fact that marriage in truth and its fullness is the exact opposite. It's, it's this coming, it's getting over ourselves. It's, it's now, it, we literally make a pledge at an altar to say, I am yours from this right. moment on. And you are mine. Yeah. And then realizing people thinking that for the other person. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And then realizing, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to do that. I I mean, I guess I, (laughs) I mean, I sincerely want to, and I find myself, like you said, I'll never be like my dad, but in moments of crisis and in moments of things, we revert not to our training. We revert back to our memory. Mm Mm-hmm. It happens so quickly. It happens so. This is again. I want to go too broad here, but this is this is what we're trying to get at with race issues. We're trying to get this with sex and sexuality. We're trying to get at this with with all these identities. That is that we fall immediately back to our memory and sort of the subconscious understanding. On going back, to, if you understand in neurobiology, it's the limbic part of the brain, not the prefrontal cortex, where we're figuring things out. There's this part of the brain that stores the emotions of every experience we've had. So when we have a current experience, it reminds us of the past one. So with subconsciously, we move right back to, all right, you should feel this way. Okay, react this way. <laughs> and, and when we start to see that, we say, wait a minute, I can't believe I just said that. I can't believe I just, that sounded just like my father. I swear <laughs> right. I was not going to yep. do that, right? Yep. So the, the, the formation piece is not so much of, of you know, retraining for training's sake as much as it is a healing of memories. It's a healing of expectation. And whether it's with marriage or our priests or our religious or, you know, celibates, you know, um, celibate virgin, whatever it is, the human, the, the human information with Christ from baptism is turning from the self to Christ. Mm. And that's the relational truth that understands every part of our theology. And marriage, rightly understood to the Christian, is a state of life where we are working out that salvation in fear and trembling. And only Christ can do that healing. He's the physician. The one we love is the, is the emotion. It's the emotor. It moves us to do things we would never do for a law. We would never do for a rule. We would never do even for a commandment. But right. we do it for love. Yep. So God knows what he's doing. He knows who we are. <laughs> he's really good. He's really good at what he does. Yes, he uh, does. That is for sure. Yeah, no, there's so much, yeah, so much goodness there. Uh, you reminded me in, in saying all of that of one thing that I often tell. I, I, I often tell this to women, but I think it's obviously true for both uh, the man and the woman when you're getting married is that you're not just picking your spouse, but you're also, I think the easiest way to kind of shift that sometimes when people are in like a negative relationship and they, they're still kind of self-focused or they're so focused, I would say it's somewhat prideful. I, I think that it's somewhat prideful sometimes when we're in a relationship with somebody who's either completely lost from their faith or really just in a bad spot. Right. And like, everybody thinks we should break up with them, but we stay together with that person because we can change them. Right. Like Mm -hmm. we're the ones that have the ability to change them, even though they have no desire to change. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a certain element of pride in that, even though it really plays itself out a lot of times in 
a lot of self-deprecating behavior, right? A lot of self-destructive behavior by constantly giving yourself to somebody who doesn't appreciate you, who isn't grateful for whatever. Um, I think one thing I always try to remind people is that when you're picking your spouse, you're not just picking somebody for you, but you're also picking who's going to, you know, God willing, if you have children, be the mother or the father of your kids. <laughs> just such an easy way to really shift. Yes. You know, um, not just is this person making me happy, but like genuinely, are they good? Like, is this a good person mm. who is capable of leading a family or being part of a strong family that has faith that they can pass down? And when I was in the army, I used to take it one level further and be like, if I were to die in war, like what would my kids be like as adults being raised by this person? You know, like if, if I didn't make it, yeah, you know, would my kids still be have the same values and same principles and beliefs and things that and character that I hope that I'll be able to influence them with, you know, with this person, knowing that if we do it together, that's how it'll be most successful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love that. And what I like about that is that it's sort of a thought experiment it is a thought experiment mm -hmm. that gets beyond uh, your own power. So it's acknowledging a powerlessness. So you're putting yourself in a thought experiment of powerlessness. You're not there. You're right. lost in war. You know, you're, you're and saying, you know, what am I setting forth in the future? It's a good it's a good sort of decoupling of self yeah. in that thought experiment. I would add too that the other piece with, you know, looking for the spouse and discernment and, you know, for marriage is yes, good. And that's that's and you recognize that because we're attracted to the good, the true and the beautiful for sure. But also the desire to be good. And when you marry, yeah. pun intended, when you marry the desire to be good with the acknowledgement that only God is good, mm. then you can almost, almost ignore where people are in their faith, where you're almost, mm -hmm. where you can say, you know what, I, 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 am, I have goodness. I've experienced it in my family of origin, even imperfectly. I desire to be good. And I know that God is good. Man, you give me a, a man and a woman who acknowledge that then you've got access to the very love that you need. You've got the humility to receive it. And then you've got the ability to, to measure it, not by your own power, but by your relationship to that power. You, you get what I'm getting at? So it's, there's a posture there that I think is essential um, that really will get you through far more than skills training. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's so, so important. And another thing that's been so, so big for me in just getting engaged that I already knew, but it became so much more real when I could put a face and a name to yes. <laughs> who I'd yes. be carrying. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just like the idea of you making what you're talking about, being a gift of yourself to the other person, like that you think about, you know, every time, you know, you're feeling temptation to sin or um, debating whether or not to go to the chapel or, or go to the gym or be wise with my money, right? Like, you, it's so much more clear. And it's, it's something that can be clear prior to engagement, prior to dating, because all of it, every decision I made before that impacted all of these things now too, right? But it's like, you just, it just becomes so much more clear. And the, the deeper that we can think about that and understand that everything I do is not just for me, but is also going to impact the man that Emily is going to marry, which before that was just the man that my wife was going to marry or the priest that I was going to become, you know? And like the people who I was going to care about and love the most are going to be directly impacted by all of these decisions that I make now uh, is, is just something that's so powerful. I think really helps people to frame, help me to frame, you know, that I'm going to make a gift of myself. And I wanted that to be the best gift that I can give to my favorite person I've ever known. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I want to give her the best gift I can. 
Um, just like in your ring shopping, right? Like I'm like, I want to give her the best gift that I can. I want her to love this. I want her to, you know, mm. love spending time with every gift that you give. You just want, and this is the biggest gift I'm ever going to give her is me on a daily basis forever, you know? And it's like, you want to make that the best that you can make it. I love it. Absolutely. 100%. It, you know, these symbols are powerful precisely because they symbolize what's most important to us. You know, I want this to reflect it. It doesn't have to be in the number of carats or the size of the, right. you know, unless that's what resonates with, nothing wrong with that. Um, but you find out those symbols that really take their power from the reality they symbolize, whether it's a ring, whether it's a gift, whether it's presence, your time, whether it's money, you know, whatever it is, it only takes its power from, from what it communicates. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's so good. I think it's, it's really important for people just to kind of really wrap their heads around that. And it's something that I wish it's just a message that I wish we could, you know, just blast on speakers around the country, you know, because it's so sad to me, even just the way that I grew up, right? Like, I remember growing up in like, uh, you know, especially in regards to chastity, like, they're just, the rules were just not there. And my family didn't care, like nobody, siblings, like nobody guided me, you know, and it's not to make excuses and say that it was other people's fault, because I was being guided at school, right? So I, I at least had my Catholic education where people were teaching me I had natural law and the feelings in my heart, right? To knew, know that I was sitting and eventually came to embrace those and realize those and accept the responsibility. But it is, you know, it's always kind of frustrating when you're like, why didn't anybody really tell me? I didn't know all of this. You know what I mean? Like nobody really told me like the deep side of it and like tried to explain and, and rationalize it with me um, of why this stuff mattered so much. And I think that it's so sad. You know, we have this, like, we're so oversaturated with, knowledge right and i put that in air quotes because a lot of times it's not real right we just spend so much time on the internet and learning some things there's a bunch of different stuff but it's like people really so many people it gives us this false impression that everybody knows the gospel everybody's foreign everybody knows this stuff already and people just don't like people just don't and they're actively what you were talking about earlier they're actively being taught other things about marriage family sex all this stuff on a daily basis and so really people are not only not knowing the good they're being taught evil and lies and and things like that that are manipulating people and we're seeing the divorce rates you know the pornography effects and all these other things that reflect that yeah no i'm 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 hearing everything you're saying 100 agree and my my sense is always kind of go deeper why 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 and you know some of the the, again smarter people i've 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 been reading talking more cultural trends that beyond sort of that that's knowledge of, of evil and the, the different worldview, there really is a, um, a fundamental, I mean, at the base root, at the, at the root, disagreement about who we are as people, as the human person. And it shows up not in philosophy arguments, it shows up in the way we answer questions, in the way that we, we seek our own happiness, the way that we you know, grasp things. And one thing that's really influencing me over the last few months is, is this idea of, you know, our training, our education in this in this modern culture of being, of searching for all the things that we think are going to make us psychologically and emotionally happy. That happiness is 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 so internal that even institutions like the church, like school, like my job, my relationships, everything, everything that that is outside of me objectively only exists for me to shop at. It's the great Walmart. Mm-hmm. And I go to these places and I take from that, it's my responsibility, if I'm a really responsible person, is to go to any of these institutions and only take from it what I think is going to make me a better person. Mm-hmm. And nobody says this. It's the ethos, right? So internal that everything is judged by what I think, what feels right, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's permeating even the social media that, you know, you don't just watch television, it's YouTube. 
Like it's about what you need to do this. Mm -hmm. the, the advertising world now even advertises colleges and things by, you know, you decide, your university, your choice. You and I'm not mocking it as if I'm standing on the outside of it. I'm inside it, questioning it, saying, right. how can you move from that to standing at an altar and saying, I give my life to you. And I know that I, together we give our life to Christ who gives us everything, including our own identity and our mission and vocation. It's a, it's a 180 degree pivot mm. to look at something like the church and say, I pledge myself through you to Christ to become who I am. That's one side. 180 degrees from it says, I will be with you as long as you help me to be a better person. And I will take right. from what I need and I will leave what I don't. And I'm going to become a good enough person that I deserve heaven. Mm. And then, this, it, it's absurd. We put it into words, but man, right. <laughs> when you come face to face with Christ and you come face to face with what the church and the scriptures teach about everything, you can't, there's only so far you can go before it hits you right in the face that there's something fundamentally disordered out of order. Yeah. with the way we see ourselves and the way we see ourselves in the world. And if we don't address it, everything's going to be a conflict. Everything. Right. Everything's out of order. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yep. That's so big. You know, one of the biggest things we just shared this on a podcast, Emily and I did one about sharing our story and just Ooh. like how we met and a lot of things that we had disagreed on initially that we eventually, you know, kind of figured out together. And one of those things that she challenged me a ton on is just the perspective of my role as a husband and father. Ooh, and so, love especially, it. <laughs> and love. I, I really am curious to hear, you know, your thoughts on it or just your reaction to this, but it was something that, you know, at, at the beginning, because I really felt like I was going to spend my whole life evangelizing, doing work for the church. I'm like, I kind of saw them as, as equal. If not, that one was more important. Right. Right. And so it's kind of like, well, I'm evangelizing, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing what God asks us to do. Right. Like Jesus wants us to make disciples of all nations that work's going to take a lot. You know what I mean? And like being married. And I thought that it was incredibly important. Like, it's not like I didn't think that that mattered or fatherhood mattered. Of course. But I definitely did not view it as the most important work I would ever do. Wow. Right? I, I didn't view it as the most important role I would ever play. I, and I really struggled with like, I mean, it's up there. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I was just kind yeah. of like the three are kind of tied. Like my work, my, my family, my wife, you know, like they're kind of up there. Mm -hmm. she really challenged me in big ways and she was really unhappy to hear that I thought <laughs> <laughs> and was not loving it and i'm just like man like, she, this girl just doesn't get it you know like she doesn't understand how important this is. That's right. <laughs> so i'm like oh, stuck man. in it but we had, had so many i said that once i've said it a thousand times that exactly what said, right? <laughs> this woman just doesn't get it right she just doesn't get it man <laughs> and so i'm like i need to call david <laughs> <You know? laughs> but yeah it was wild and um we're kind of figuring it out. And, and we had so many moments like this where it's like one of us is being stubborn. We kind of take some time apart, not apart, like not talking or breaking up, but like, you know, we just hang up the phone or whatever, you know what I mean? Go about our days for a few days. And um, I, I kind of just really thought about it more, prayed about it more and was like, man, she's right. <laughs> you know, like this is really real. So what was that kind of process for you of kind of realizing that obviously being super educated, I, I know that at Ivy Leagues, they're not telling you that the most important work that you're going to do is in the home, I assume, right? Yeah. Ivy League school. So like, how did you kind of come to that point of realizing like, this is the most important stuff I'm going to do? Same as you. It, it took, it took my wife, it took my bride and, and it wasn't as much the, I wish we had that kind of mature dialogue, you know, that you guys are having now. I really do. 
for us, we had to wait for the conflicts to teach us. And I don't mean conflicts one or two in the first year of marriage. I mean, like year 15, still arguing about the same stuff we argued about in year one, you know, and, and, and it wasn't that till then that we're bringing in, you know, uh, relationship experts and, and therapists and and reading about attachment theory and love languages and all these things and figuring out, you know what, from the very beginning, I had a fundamentally different idea of what it meant to be your husband and to be a father. I mean, we had to come in like, that's like decades in, like, what right. the I, obviously when I said to be your husband, I meant, I'm going to take care of you financially. I'm going to take care of this house. I'm going to make sure that you're always secure. And then I'm going to do whatever has to do to protect you. I mean, that was the fundamental. It was so obvious. I never had to articulate it like you, you guys talking about it. And in her mind, she had the same certainty that what it meant to be her husband means that I would always be there with her. Mm. That that no matter what, that, that number one was I would always be present to her. So it was, it's her love language. It's her attachment style. There's, you know, all these things we've got vocabulary for now. Right. In her mind, she had formed as a young girl that my husband will be. Just like I formed in my mind, my wife will be and I will be for you. So ours has come through a lot of pain and a lot of wounds, a lot of father wounds, you know, on her side, my side is too, a lot of relationship wounds prior to, you know, to us being together. And then finally realizing that even as, you know, there's no question we're meant to be together, we have fundamentally different views about what it means to be on the same page, to right. be on the same team, yeah. to be husband and wife, to be father and mother, right? I'm looking out thinking, you know, financial, protection, security, uh, mm-hmm. job, excellence, and all these things so that you can keep this house and you can do. And and in her mind, it was like, why, why don't you want to be with me? Right. Why are you always gone? And, you know, we're finally here on the weekend. And you're outside cutting the grass and you're and you're doing, you know, you're, you're washing the car and you're and you're doing. All, and I'm thinking I've been wanting to do this all week because I saw you need a gas in your car. I saw, you know, the car was right. dirty and you're you're busy. The grass with the kids long. And you're, exactly. <laughs> you're homeschooling, you're nursing, you're pregnant. You're doing, and I come home and I'm I'm getting it done. And she's like, she's like, where are you? You're always gone. And I'd hear it. But then I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But wait till I wash your car. Wait, wait till you see right. you know, you're, you know, at, your you're, <laughs> at your service, where would you yeah. be? And man, so uh, to your answer, your question is that we, we, we experienced the pain and the wounds we caused in each other right. and then had the fortitude to look to smarter and, you know, more mature people to help us understand why we're still fighting about the same things and hurting each other and half speak and saying one thing with one intention and being heard with something totally different. And not figuring out, like, obviously you're crazy, baby. So, because you're not hearing what I'm saying. Because <laughs> yeah. I literally never said that. But, you know, I know you're not crazy because you really think you heard what I said. And she says the exact same thing to me. You know, right. I, I never said that. I'm like, yes, you did. Yes, you did. And what you really meant was. <laughs> right? That's so funny. <laughs> oh, man. Right, marriage, my man. Marriage. That's so good. I can't wait. I can't wait. Good, uh, good. Yeah, no, it's so good. I think, and I think, you know, to definitely, we don't deserve too much credit there. Cause I think it's honestly, you know, obviously by the grace of God, but also thanks yes. to people like you, um, mm-hmm. you know, the speakers and writers and the people who have put out these messages, you know, that learned it the hard way for so long that, you know, have gone around and, and just I'm so grateful for your work and the work of so many people who have shared those messages with us so that we can have them. You know, I think that in the church, in a lot of ways, you know, I view the church, I think that, the church in so many ways, you know, I, I did a talk in college where I compared the church to the Yankees because I love the Yankees and, and how, <laughs> you know, it was fun for Jeter to get to wear the jersey. You think of Aaron Judge now, 
because of the legacy that that Jeter built and the legacy that mm. Mattingly, you know, and, and all the legends, Babe Ruth, yes. Lou Gehrig, right? Like it's awesome because and they get to like experience that without really having put in the work for it. And mm. I think that we had the saints and we had so many people, but even in the church in America, I look at a lot of you know the speakers and people that came before us and how grateful I am for the work that you guys did paving the way for that to happen. Um, and just want to take it to the next level. You know, we have a responsibility to overcome everything we talked about earlier with the imposter syndrome and all this stuff to have the humility to say, well, it's not just, it's easy to just be like, well, I, you know, walk away from this foolishly and be like, wow, it took Damon 15 years to figure this out. You know, I figured it out already, but that's dumb because like, I figured it out because of you, you know, because of Sarah Swafford or because of whoever it was. And so being grateful for that and allowing that to be like, wow, I wonder if I can be a daemon in somebody else's life you know and taking that and being inspired by that and even if it's in a different level it doesn't mean i have to travel around speaking or anybody else has to but just that one i'm sure you've done in a lot of one-on-one relationships and people that you've met over the years and how impactful that is and just wanting to be that for others oh nathan but, you're tapping into my dream man you're tapping yeah. into my dream because i the vision again without you know being over in terms of plug here the, the ministry here we've millie and i started last year joyful ever after is, is exactly that it's a recognition that you know we are here because of so many people with names, most names you wouldn't even recognize, some right. you would, who have been crucial at stages in our marriage that have helped us not just to overcome a crisis, but to grow and to flourish. And we built that idea saying, this can't just be about a talk. It can't be about a book. It can't be something in the public domain only. That there are couples, every couple has a story to tell. It's like you guys are telling your story, a story yeah. to tell to connect with the current you also need to hear the stories of people that are x number of years ahead of you and going through experience wise not age but experience and people younger in experience less experience need to hear from all of those so what if the normative in marriage this is our fundamental ministry question what if it was normative that we lived our marriages in real community as opposed to an isolation and incidental community in other words you've got a you've got a cohort two three four couples and we are, we are friends. And that friendship is one that's built on honesty. It's built on transparency. And obviously friendship is, is there's a comfort level of discomfort, but it's not this sort of this facade of how's it going? Great. How's it going? Oh, great. You know, see a world marriage day, you know, do sort of these external things that, right. that define it. And all of a sudden you realize you find out seven years in your friends are separated and you're like, what Se- separate? I thought everything was, was fine. And the, the question for us is, how do you make normative exactly what you said to be in contact in a very natural way with certain couples at certain levels of intimacy? That you're not just reading a book, but there are, there are three couples that have been crucial, older, younger, your age, and, and working through the day-to-day graces of marriage. And then you add, of course, and I just add, this is how the sacramental graces should come to us. Yeah. They come through our relationships with other people. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just thanks for all the work that you're doing. Joyful ever after. I'm super excited about it and excited to see what it will become. Um, and hope that, you know, yeah, your dreams come true in that because I think that it is so needed and it is such a good, uh, simple way, you know, that people can really transform not only their lives and their relationships, but the lives and relationships of other people. So God that's going to be awesome. That's going to be God awesome, man. Thank so last question I want to ask you is with all of this stuff and you can just brainstorm a ton, but I know people will write these down and, and love to hear them is what are some book recommendations? I know you're, yeah. you, you're very well read and, and just like either in theology, of the body or marriage or discerning marriage, any of that stuff. Like what are some of your favorites just off the top of your head? 
Yeah, I mean, just so quickly about philosophy, right? So there was a professor here when I was up in New Jersey, Seton Hall Deacon, great guy. And he taught me something early on about reading and books and, and these kind of things. And that is, and he had a library. I mean, he was one of these guys, like if you ever go to Scott Hahn's house, he's, he's got a whole like wing of books of things. And looking at him like, man, how do you read all these books? And the philosophy was, he said, you know what? Most books have one to two ideas that you need. And the right. idea is getting through the books to find the one or two things that you need right now. Yep. So the reading piece is about connecting you and your real experience right now with somebody who can either fulfill your understanding of that meaning of the experience or lead you to a deeper relationship with, with yourself and with God. So in that sense, I would say, you know, first of all, be very authentic in your prayer. What delights you? What did you hear from a speaker, either topic or uh, a quote or even a book that you said, ooh, ooh, that's something I want to know. And you got to begin there. Because when you read things, you can't just read things because somebody else tells you to read it. You read it because it's answering a question that you've asked. There's nothing less credible, the quote says, nothing less credible than the answer to a question that you haven't asked. There's nothing less credible than the answer to a question you haven't asked. It's, it's just you don't care. You may, you may pretend like you're supposed to care. You read a theology, the body book, and you're like, oh, that was all interesting, and you remember one quote. Well, that's what you were interested in. That's the question you were asking. Right. So Melanie and I got our power because we sought out answers to questions that we were formulating real time about yeah. sex, about intimacy, about the church, about a church teaching. So you know, for us, we would pick up at one point in 1992, Humanae Vitae, which I never heard the phrase of until somebody says, well, the answer there is Humanae Vitae 10. I'm like, wait, wait, what does that even mean, Humanae Vitae 10? I don't even know what that means. Is that <laughs> right. a, is that a, so like the tenth book in the in the series of you know, right. so they hand me this this seventeen page book and they say oh look read and I read the quote and I'm like that's exactly what I just asked so then I say well I want to read Humanity nine because <laughs> right. how did you get to ten with so go to the first <laughs> yeah go to the paragraph right and you so all of a sudden you're reading Humanity Vitae. we're reading it and we're thinking this book answers everything it's literally called of human life so so like this is this is <laughs> what we needed at the time right yeah. so same thing with the theology of the body with teachings on marriage with certain speakers, yeah. podcasts like yours, gravitate and be accountable. That's not a good word. Yeah, that's a good word. Gravitate and with an intentionality yeah. to those things that intrigue you. And, and where the fire is, throw gasoline on it. And you're going to find at some point you're listening to all these other people talk about the same six or eight people, the same six or eight books. And you're like, right. you know what? I need to pick up St. John of the Cross. I need to actually pick yep. up and read uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body and be intimidated by the philosophy of the – but read it myself. I need to actually read Peter Kreeft. Kreeft. You need to read Peter Kreeft. This man is like – he's like the, the conduit to every question a modern Christian Catholic would ever need to know. So <laughs> right. he's one, you know and there's a few of those. My point is you're going to find your subset of people that are, are, are speaking your language. Yeah. So I recommend – you know. Digging around to find those things that 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 connect you. I always recommend um, the theology body for beginners. You know Christopher West's book on mm -hmm. there, God, Sex, and the Meaning of Life. You know Q and A bathroom book where you can just pick it up and in that perfect time read a question and an answer. Right? Um, uh, anything by Peter Kreef will delight you. Anything by Fulton Sheen will rock your world. Mm. I mean he's just that good. Three to for get sure. married if you're anywhere near marriage. Uh, it's dense. Yeah, I just bought that one. Uh, bro, I, I honestly, I've never gotten through it. He's, really? He slays me. I pick it up and I read a chapter. I read a paragraph 
and I have to put it down because I'm like, that is unbelievable. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I, I, I can't if, wait. I it, if I picked it up once, I've picked it up a hundred times and been edified every time I've read it. Wow. But I can't say that I've read the whole thing because I can't get through it. He, he explodes <laughs> my head and my heart. I kid you not. That's so wild. So that's, and that, but that's the good from this Deacon taught me. That's what books are for. They're not to get from start to finish all the time. Sometimes you have to. Sometimes you get what you need in the first chapter, in the foreword. Sometimes you get in the last line of the book, and you got to get through the whole thing. But right. you're not accumulating book titles. You're, you're accumulating wisdom about yourself that God will reveal to you. And if there are fundamental things you need to know, you need to read it. If there are psychological, therapeutic things, if you read anything by Dr. Bob Schutz, your life will never be the same. Bob Schutz, mm -hmm. S-C-H-U-C-H-T-S. Uh, the John Paul, St. John Paul II Healing Center in Florida. Um, I'm a huge Dr. Greg Popchak fan. Uh, Popchak and Greg and Lisa Popchak just have unpacked marriage and family life in a way that has blessed Melanie and me for literally decades. And we're, mm. we're privileged to call them friends. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where I would start. That's awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much, man. This is so good. I knew it would be this good and it was this good. So I'm super grateful for your time and just joining me today. It was really awesome. Thank you for having me, man. You're a blessing and I appreciate everything you do. Yeah, I'm just praying for the success of all the stuff you got going on. I think it'll be really good. So thank you so much. God's will. Thank you.